The forest fires in the West are racing out the Climate change is real, and it is caused by man-made greenhouse gas pollution, and it poses significant threats to humanity. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever and whenever you are. Welcome to Ag Students for Facts, a podcast by young adults in ag programs looking for the truth about different topics relating to our government, our world, and our planet. Today, we are recording on Quinnipiac land, otherwise known as Central Connecticut. This is your daily reminder that we are all living on stolen land. I'm Maddie. I'm Brooke. I'm Vanessa. This week, we are talking about current ag issues faced by marginalized communities. We will be delving into three major issues the Line 3 pipeline and its damaging effects on Native communities and their agricultural practices, the Flint water crisis, as well as other ways that BIPOC and low-income communities are impacted by the water industry, and lastly, the disenfranchisement of disabled people in agriculture. So Vanessa, what can you tell us about the issue of the Line 3 pipeline? So Line 3 is an oil pipeline that carries tar sands crude oil 1,097 miles from Edmonton in Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin in the U.S. Um, And the company who built the pipeline is called Enbridge. According to Enbridge, the pipeline has about 900 structural issues, uh, including leaks, cracks, and the use of the same defective pipe coating that caused the oil spill in Kalamazoo in 2010. Line three is old and corroding. Uh, Steel isn't permanent. It's going to corrode away at some point. Um, And instead of fixing this pipeline, Enbridge wants to build a replacement pipeline, um, which would carry about 760,000 barrels of crude oil per day. It would cross over 200 bodies of water, including the Mississippi River, two separate times. Who would this problem affect the most? Uh, So the people who are going to be the most affected by this are the Native people in Minnesota and the surrounding states. Um, Based on the current state of the Line 3 pipeline, it is likely that the water is already contaminated, and the construction of the new pipeline would put these waters at even more risk for oil spills and contamination. Um, The proposed line runs right through three of North America's major watersheds, Uh, including the Great Lakes, which house one-fifth of the world's supply of fresh water, this pipeline would put all of that at risk for oil spills and contamination. This line also runs through land where the Ojibwe retain the right to hunt, fish, farm, and gather medicine, as stipulated in the 1855 treaty. In regards to uh, Native agriculture, um, wild rice or manumen is gathered in the area where the pipeline would be running through. Uh, Manumen is sacred to the Ojibwe and the Line 3 pipeline would seriously endanger it, not only as an invaluable food source for their community, but also as a symbol of great cultural significance for the Ojibwe people. So what are the most recent updates on the Line 3 replacement plan? The Minnesota Pollution Control Agency granted water crossing permits to Enbridge on November 12th of 2020, and the Army Corps of Engineers issued permits on November 23rd of 2020. Um, Since then, many grassroots organizations like Minnesota 350, Stop Line 3, the Ginny Collective, and Honor the Earth have led several peaceful protests. It's mostly on the construction sites on the proposed route for the new pipeline. Some people camp on construction sites or hold tree sit-ins to act as human shields to protect their land. 
For example, one water protector named Don Goodwin and other Anishinaabe women went to a, and I apologize if my pronunciation is incorrect, Waganugan, a traditional teaching lodge on the upper Mississippi River. And there they discovered machines tearing down trees to make room for the replacement line three. Don Goodwin sat down in prayer in front of the machine and she and the executive director of Honor the Earth, whose name is Winona LaDuke, sat there in the path of the machines to prevent them from doing any further damage to native land. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of protests, there have been protests all across Minnesota since November. Um, people are getting arrested and it is mostly, the people who are protesting are mostly older native women um, and they are still being arrested for nonviolently protesting. Uh, different organizations, like the ones I've just mentioned, um, have appealed in state courts and the fights are ongoing in the courts to remove Enbridge's authority to construct this pipeline. Um, organizers are saying that with the decline in the fossil fuels and tar sands industries, that this in Minnesota is the last stand. Enbridge says construction is underway and will be completed in six to nine months. This, they need all the help they can get right now, basically. Can you tell us a little bit more about how we can help? So the biggest thing you can do, uh, and this applies to anyone anywhere in the world, is support these organizations by donating on their website. In the description of this podcast, we will be providing a list of links um, where you can donate. Uh, for my topic, this, these organizations include Stop Line 3, Honor the Earth, Friends of the Headwaters, the RISE Coalition, the Jenny Collective, and the Line 3 Legal Defense Fund, which is leading the legal charge and the litigation against Enbridge. Uh, there will be links to petitions, as well as links um, to fact sheets created by the Stop Line 3 organization about uh, the corrosiveness of the oil, about um, water contamination, a whole bunch of different things. Um, so you can educate yourself and the people around you on line three. The last thing is there will be a list of banks who support the tar sands industry. If you are in a financial position to do this, look at that list. And if you use a bank on that list uh, and you are able to um, do business with a different bank. Uh, so next, Maddie is going to talk to us about the exploitation of low-income and BIPOC communities by the water industry and other issues of water security faced by this community. So Maddie, uh, what is some background info about this issue? Okay, yeah. So the water crisis of Flint, Michigan began 2014 when the town switched its water supply from Detroit system to the Flint River in order to save money. However, this decision resulted in a series of major water quality and health issues for the citizens of Flint. Way before the water crisis, the Flint River has seen many other environmental problems. It served as the city's unofficial dump site for a while and has also received raw sewage from the city's waste disposal plant, agricultural and urban runoff, and even toxins from landfills. As I previously mentioned, in order to cut costs, the city began to temporarily pump water from the Flint River until the new pipeline from Lake Huron was built. The river water was highly corrosive and Flint officials failed to treat it and eventually lead leached out of the pipes into the homes of thousands. Shortly after the switch, residents began to complain that the water was discolored and smelled and tasted foul. Despite protests from the residents, officials claimed that the water was still safe. Nearly a year after the first reports, Virginia Tech researchers collected water samples from 252 homes and found that nearly 17% of homes 
had 15 parts per billion of lead and 40% of homes had five parts per billion of lead. They indicated that these levels were a very serious problem. To put this into perspective, the EPA set the maximum containment level of lead in drinking water at zero because even the smallest amount has damaging effects. Lead poisoning wasn't the only thing plaguing the residents of Flint from the contaminated water supply. Legionnaire's disease, which is a severe form of pneumonia, killed 12 and sickened at least 87, as well as the elevation and the level of total trihalomethanes, which are cancer-causing chemicals that are the byproduct of chlorination of water. In conclusion, this switch in water supply created a huge water quality and health problem in the city. Water security is a huge issue worldwide. Flint serves as a reminder that safe water is not a guarantee. Data from the EPA allowed the National Resources Defense Committee to find out that nearly 30 million Americans drink water that in some way violated the EPA's lead and copper rule. This rule was used to regulate and control lead and copper found in drinking water. If lead concentrations exceed 15 parts per billion and copper concentrations exceed 1.3 parts per million uh, in more than 10% of the sample water supplies, the system must be repaired to control the corrosion. So who is affected by this issue? As the Michigan Civil Rights Commission concluded, the poor government response to the Flint water crisis was a result of systemic racism. That being said, about 57% of the population is black and 42% of the residents live below the poverty line. The water crisis affects black people and people that are low income. Through the process of studies, it was concluded that children were some of the most affected by lead levels in the water. In Flint, nearly 9,000 children were supplied with lead-contaminated water for 18 months. But wow, I had no idea that it was that many. I knew it was like a population-dense city, but I had no idea that it was that many people were being affected by it. Um, so what are, this obviously started a very long time ago, but have there, do the residents of Flint have clean water now? Like what are some recent developments in this issue? Yeah, so as for recent developments, in January 2021, nine people were charged following the investigation into the Flint water crisis. Those charges included the former Michigan governor, Rick Snyder. Snyder and the others have been accused of various crimes in a plan to release lead into the water supply and cause an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Even though it has been years since the start of the water crisis, pipes at 9,700 homes have been replaced and the water quality has since then greatly improved. Prosecutors noted that this was one of the worst human-made environmental disasters in the US, and it also shed light on environmental justice and racism. Snyder is facing two misdemeanor counts of willingful neglect of duty, and then Nick Lyon, Snyder's former health director, and Dr. Eden Wells, the ex-chief medical executive, were both charged with involuntary manslaughter regarding the deaths of nine people in 2015. That's honestly really sad. <laughs> like that's, I don't know, that's a really rough topic. I don't even know. I definitely shouldn't have been that way. And I think that kind of goes to show how important it is that more people do know about this topic mm-hmm. and more people are educated enough to be able to, you know, kind of get motivated to help solve the problem. But that brings me into my next question. Why is it so important that people are aware and educated about what is going on? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, first off, lead contamination is very serious and is connected to serious health impacts, 
Some of these health impacts may even end in death. Even exposure to low levels can lead to developmental problems in children, including reducing IQ, physical growth, anemia, hearing impairment, cardiovascular disease, and behavioral issues. While large doses have been linked to high blood pressure, heart and kidney disease, and reduced fertility. The Flint water crisis is important because of the health issues that came from it. Another reason why the Flint water crisis is so important is because of environmental injustice. University of Michigan's Paul Mohai called it the worst example of environmental injustice in recent US history. The public officials' decisions resulted in poisoning the city's water supply, not to mention how slow they were to recognize and respond to the issue. Mohai says that these things make this the most egregious example of environmental injustice and racism that he has seen during his three decades of studying the issue. The Flint water crisis teaches us the importance of the citizens. The government should be held accountable and should be listening to the complaints of citizens rather than being disrespected, minimized, or even dismissed. I'm sorry, this is just an aside really quickly. Did you say earlier that the government planned the release of the Legionnaire's disease? Yeah, so um, obviously, as I mentioned, they, um, the government wanted to switch the water supplies to, as to save money, as you do. That's a good reason to switch the water supply. However, they knew that the river was highly corrosive. They knew that there was all these problems with it. Like, as I mentioned, like it was used as like a dump disposal. Um, There's like a lot of landfills nearby it and like um, treatment plants and like, just like different industry, like where are those like buildings? Like where like you process lumber and meat and stuff like that. Yeah. So all this runoff is going into the water. So they knew that there was something obviously like messed up about the water. But even so, they still decided to use that water for the city's drinking supply. So through the investigation that was done, the investigators like kind of put two and two together and were like, this is kind of planned. If they knew how bad the water was, why would they have done it? Just to save money? So they're obviously more worried about uh, economics and finances rather than the safety of their own citizens. So that's kind of what led to the prosecutors deciding to charge these people with all these crimes. Yeah, I was just about to say that too, that they were more worried about convenience and saving money than people's actual lives and the quality that they live their lives at. It kind of like makes you think about how many other situations that this logic kind of applies to. How many other people do this in the world with all different kinds of situations and scenarios? And I remember seeing, I remember hearing about it in 2014 when it first happened. And from what I have heard and seen, um, the only reason that the Flint community was able to survive this was because of mutual aid organizations and community organizations. Um, so how, and even now, the people in Flint are still being supported by these organizations. So how can we support them? What can we do to help in this situation? Yeah, help is something that this community definitely relied on during this very difficult and dangerous situation. So there are a couple different ways that you can help support the Flint community. As always, it is important to donate. In the case of Flint, you should look to donate to the organizations that are bringing clean water to Flint's residents. The United Way of Genesee County has set up the Flint Waterfront. 
Good thing about this fund, 100% of the donations go to buying filters and bottled water for the residents. The Community Foundation of Greater Flint is looking for donations to help support public health, medical, and community-based services. The Flint Community Schools accepts both cash donations and bottled water donations if you live near Flint. And then if you cannot donate, another way is through helping support the research efforts that are providing us with the education on the quality of Flint's water. The Flint Water Study is conducted by an independent research team from Virginia Tech sharing the information they find is important and keeping the public aware of the facts. And finally, signing petitions and sending emails or letters to government officials is also important in standing for a cause. Um, if you look further into the description of the podcast, there are three links set up that you can use. There's resources on them for you to further educate yourself. And then all of them have places where you can donate some money if you can. All right, moving on to our next topic, Brooke is going to talk about the discrimination against disabled people in agriculture. Tell us more background information, please, Brooke. So individuals with disabilities, whether they're physical or mental, face many challenges when working in agriculture. And this definitely negatively impacts their productivity, mental and physical health, and overall their quality of life. Disabled agricultural workers face many barriers, such as lack of effective worksite accommodations, lack of professionals trained to assist and teach those with disabilities, lack of financial resources and negative attitudes from healthcare professionals, rehabilitation, and even able-bodied agricultural workers about the ability of disabled agricultural workers to succeed in their occupation. Wow, that's rough, even within their own industry, like their co-workers. Yeah, I mean, it's it sadly happens in a lot of professions, but especially because so being in the agricultural industry does require to an extent manual labor and a lot of things that disabled people are thought to not be capable of by the public. But that doesn't always, you know, that's not always the truth. We just sometimes need a bit more accommodations. Yeah, that's a common misconception for sure. Um, so who is this issue affecting? Inaccessibility in the agricultural workforce affects those with disabilities who are interested in taking on a career in the agricultural industry, but don't have access to the resources or accommodations to make the job safe and accessible to them. This can also affect the disabled people who live in areas where the only available jobs are in the agricultural industry. For some, this could be their only source of income, but because of the inaccessibility of these jobs, they may not be able to safely work and earn a living for themselves or their families. Wow, that's a lot of people that this affects. Do you know of any recent developments in the issue? There is an organization called Agribility. This organization is made to spread awareness and information to the public about agricultural workers with disabilities. Their goal is to help bring accessibility to the agricultural industry and to help encourage more people with disabilities to get involved. Because of them, there have been many recent developments to make agricultural jobs more accessible with the use of assisting technology. Some examples of this can be tractor alternatives. Tractors are used for a wide variety of tasks in the agricultural industry. Tractors were able to be modified to help those with arthritis, balance issues, and other mobility-related disabilities. They do this by adding extra steps and handhelds to the tractor to make it more easy to operate. 
Tractors also have been modified to have handheld operated clutches to help those with amputations or restricted use of their legs, and a spinner knob on the steering wheel to give better steering control to individuals with low grip strength or prosthetic devices. Custom-made seats have also been used to assist individuals with spinal cord injuries, especially those who are quadriplegic. There are many other examples of assistive technology, such as livestock guards to eliminate the need to open and close gates, motorized feed carts, easy-to-open spring-loaded latches, carrier trails for easy moving from one milking station to another, elevated garden for wheelchair users or those with other mobility impairments, and extended reach shears and other gardening tools. While there are many developments to assist those with disabilities, there's still a long way to go before agricultural careers can become completely safe and accessible for everyone. So Brooke, why is it important that we bring attention to this issue? Inaccessibility to those with disabilities is very common everywhere in the world. Whether it's inaccessibility for those in wheelchairs trying to enter buildings or go from one floor to another, or the inaccessibility for a blind person not being able to see the crosswalk signs at a street crossing. Inaccessibility is a huge issue, especially when it comes to the workforce. It is estimated that about 15% of the world's population has one or more disabilities. In developing countries, 80 to 90% of disabled people of working age are unemployed while in industrial countries, 50 to 70% of disabled people are unemployed. A big reason for this is because of how inaccessible and unaccommodating most common jobs are. This can be fixed by making jobs in the agricultural industry more accessible because there are so many opportunities for jobs within the agricultural industry. Therefore, it is really important that we work on making these jobs safer and more accommodating for everyone and help spreading awareness and information about how we can do that. Many able-bodied people don't think about how difficult a simple task could be to someone with a disability because they haven't experienced the struggle themselves. This means many people don't often realize how inaccessible the world has become, so it is important for us to remind them to always be thoughtful and aware of those who may need extra accommodations, and conversations like this help us in doing that. Wow, this is like a really important topic. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Can you tell us of any ways that we can help there are many ways to help. You can start by donating to organizations such as AgriBility to help and support them and their goal to make agriculture more accessible. You can also help by simply being open-minded towards those with disabilities and the things that they are capable of. Disabled people are often overlooked by the public due to stereotypes and misinformation that is spread. Doing research and actually getting to know those with disabilities can play a big role in helping to get rid of those stereotypes and helping people be more understanding and accepting when it comes to helping and accommodating those with disabilities in the workforce. That's all for today, guys. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and learned something new. Hopefully you enjoyed learning about current ag issues that marginalized people face and that you can use this new and exciting knowledge to do good in the world. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to follow us and listen to us on Spotify. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast because you came to the Matabasa FFA Open House, thank you so much for coming to our event and we hope that you guys enjoyed. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Climate change is real and it is caused by man-made greenhouse gas pollution and it poses significant threats to human life.